1: I'm Jason Kander and I'm Ravi Gupta and this is majority 54 the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds change votes and win elections we are joined today by one of my very best friends in the entire world Stephen Weber Stephen did two tours in the Marine Corps in Iraq he also was elected at the same time that I was to the Missouri House of Representatives we were generally referred to as the dynamic duo or the military twins depending on who you're talking to because we just kind of did everything together.
2: We've been referred to as quite a pair. Quite a
1: pair. That was my favorite. Yes. He was the chair of the Missouri Democratic Party, and now he is the political director of the Missouri AFL-CIO. I can't believe it's taken me this long to have you on this podcast. Howdy. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Ravi, before news of the week, what exciting things are happening in Ravi land?
0: Oh, okay. This past weekend, you know, this is guy named Kelly Slater for people who don't follow surfing. He is like the Michael Jordan of surfing.
1: The, the very few people in our audience who <laughs> yeah, don't, follow don't follow surfing. It.
0: Well, I think a lot of people would know the name. You know, he's the most famous surfer ever. He's now 50 years old, but I think over the weekend he was 49, just about to turn 50. And he won like the most important surfing competition in the world at age 49. And what was cool about the story is that The first time he won it, he was 20. Hmm. And so he has the distinction of being the youngest and the oldest person ever to win the World Series of Surfing. So that's just a cool story. And then I was just like hyped up about it because I'm obsessed with longevity and surfing. And then just randomly, middle of this week, I get a, a message from a friend of mine who is involved in the Billions TV show. She's like a producer, and I guess they had to reshoot something. And so she gave me her slot to go to the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch on Thursday and Friday this week. So I'm heading there tomorrow to go surf at this wave pool that Kelly Slater has created. He created like a wave pool that creates a perfect wave. Will
1: you meet this, this legend? Will you meet this person?
0: No, because the, the, I don't think so because the surf... Tour is still going on. There's uh-huh. like a big competition happening. But it was just great. It was like a nice little symmetry to the week, you know? And it's a way for me to re-engage with sports without talking about the uh, the team that I, I shall not name that broke my heart a few weeks ago. Uh,
1: Steven, last week, uh, Ravi admitted that the reason he is obsessed with longevity is because he thinks he has to live a very long time to see the Bills win a Super Bowl.
2: Planning ahead, that's smart. <laughs>
0: yeah. I want to have my great, great, great grandchildren bouncing on my knee as Josh Allen III brings us our championship. I thought you were going to say,
2: because he hasn't given up on his dream
0: of playing in the NFL. And he thinks he's still got a chance. <laughs> well, that too. That too. Yeah.
1: Uh, all right, Ravi. Um, outside of surfing news, what's going on this week?
0: Well, I heard there's some controversy around Joe Rogan. Should we talk about it? I heard, I heard about that too. Some people were very
1: upset with you and I. Some people were upset with Grace. And then some people were just like, I love that show. I didn't even know he was controversial.
0: I sent you a text message of back-to-back comments on Apple Podcasts. One was saying we were too hard on Rogan and the other was saying we weren't hard enough. So I think that encapsulates where we are. I would say that we talked about Rogan last week in the context of COVID misinformation. And since that podcast, New Revelations dropped. And some of this was in the public domain. I just didn't know about them where he said uh, some racist things. And there was one particularly horrible comment story joke. I don't know what you'd call it uh, about Planet of the Apes that he said that was just terrible. Uh, He apologized for it. And interestingly, there are some members of the right that are saying he shouldn't have apologized for that, which is just a baffling take, like that you don't apologize for something that he even admits was like a racist thing. So I'm not sure what there is else to say about it other than I just want to like I would want our audience to know that I think that those comments he made are horrible. I think the larger conversation about how to engage his audience that's 11 million people and the sort of point that I made about the fact that he's not going anywhere and his audience isn't going anywhere and that our mission of this podcast is to persuade people uh, means that I continue to believe that we have to keep coming back to that audience, the conversations that he's having there, because that's where a lot of like messages are being disseminated. And where a lot of persuasions happening in America and that we have to balance the act of validating any racism or anything like that, which we absolutely would not want to do with the need to keep tabs on what's happening over there and to ensure that we're not walking away from like a huge swath of America that we need. If there's one thing I would take back from last week's episode, it was that I think I generally spoke to his character and like a, l- a little bit about like, you know, I I was personally speaking to like, is this a person changing and willing to change and all that? And like, I think like, I don't know Rogan. And I think looking back on that, like that was a little bit too far to go to to, to speak to him as a person.
1: So before I uh, possibly involuntarily bring Steven into like the biggest controversy right now, let me tee this up this way, which is that I think, and perhaps you and I didn't do a very good job of communicating this nuance. What we were, I think, trying to have a conversation about was the engagement of Rogan's audience. And a lot of people have taken that as the question of whether Rogan can be persuaded. And that's that's not the conversation that we're having. The conversation that we're having, to me, is based on the fact that like I am around people all the time, just regular folks, not political people, people I work with, people I you know play baseball with or coach Little League with, whatever it is, many of whom are Democrats who listen to Joe Rogan and who listen to him. And came to him for a variety of reasons, most of which are not political views. I bring this up to say, to your point, it is 11 million people, a big chunk of whom I consider to be persuadable. And I feel like the the worthwhile conversation to have is, put Rogan aside, it is, how do we engage these people who are persuadable voters, but are mostly men, let's be honest, they're mostly men who are like dude bros, right? Their votes count the same as everybody else. And it would be good to get those votes. And there seems to be a thing out there in the zeitgeist in the ether where there are people who want to say that engaging those voters, which is what we're talking about here, or those listeners, is somehow coddling racism or misinformation or whatever. And i I just don't see it that way. I don't see it as, you know, the same as like if I were saying, I want to go persuade Rogan, or if I want to embrace Rogan, it is the listener. So, with that said, Stephen is the former chairman of the Missouri Democratic Party. He has a lot of experience with trying to persuade people in this demographic. And I just want to let him pipe in about that separate from the Rogan controversy. So, if you're thinking that what Stephen's about to say is about to be something that you're going to start tweeting at Stephen about, just make sure you understand he's not commenting on Rogan. He's commenting on engaging, persuadable voters.
2: So, the, I mean, the only thing I think maybe I don't know if it's unique or whatever, but I don't have, I have not dug deep on, on this, this issue, but sort of going in actually with we'll we'll lead into the the conversation we'll have about redistricting is that the nation is more polarized and is sorting itself into camps very quickly. Right. And so people say I'm in so-and-so's camp. And and when they, when they join a camp, they start ascribing to a bunch of other values that maybe isn't even why that brought them into that camp. And so I say this to be careful on when, 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 in terms of polarizing, listeners, because I've heard the number 10 million. I've seen some as high as 50 million for certain episodes. And the piece that I think should be important is that I think our concept of what a listener is or what a view is, is not clear, right? Like, so for example, the way that a lot of people would consume Joe Rogan is they would be searching for an MMA video or something like that. And then the algorithm in their YouTube feed would give them a MMA video from him because he does know about MMA because he's been the announcer for a long time. So they might click on that and that might get them another MMA video. And so it is possible that you watch a certain segment of what he does and have no concept about anything else and don't follow don't, or not not served other topics. Individuals had like so some of the union members that we that I talked to, they might say, I'm a viewer because I watch the MMA videos or the videos he does on like with Neil deGrasse Tyson on science or something like that. And so they get served all of that content and they've never even been exposed. They had no idea about anything else. But if we ascribe to all viewers that you're, you're engaging in something bad by doing that, then you're shoving them into a certain camp and people are going to start subscribing to everything in that camp. And I don't think that's helpful or productive.
1: Yeah, your your point is, like, if we tell them they're a thing, after a while, they're going to go, I guess I'm that thing.
0: Well, let's hope this is the last time we're talking about Rogan for a long time. There's been so much big news outside of Rogan over the past week. Uh, one thing that happened was Friday, Mike Pence gave a speech to the Federalist Society event in Florida, and he said some notable things. He said Trump was wrong to claim that Pence could have overturned the 2020 election. And this was after Trump suggested that the January 6th committee should investigate why Pence didn't, quote, send back the votes. I'm not exactly sure what that means. And this is what Pence had to say. He said, this week, our former president said, I had the right to overturn the election. President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the uh, election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And so he was very clear on that. I know that this isn't exactly profiles and courage. This should be expected of our leaders. But on the same day, the RNC censured Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger for their role in the January 6th committee, and they condemned them for, quote, participating in a Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. McConnell has since condemned that statement. Um, Can Democrats run on this? Like the fact that the Republican Party has mainstreamed such anti-democratic attitudes? I
1: want to hear what Stephen has to say, because Stephen and I have had a lot of great conversations in the past in which he has pointed out to me, like all this stuff that's on the news, like I'm out talking to voters and I'm not hearing any of it. So I'm just curious, Stephen, if if you think that this is persuasive at all, or if this is just noise.
2: Well, I think there's there's, there's another option besides that. I don't think it's just noise. I think it's important, but I I don't know if it's persuasive. I I think people vote on what makes their life better day to day. I think those of us that are people listening to this podcast, uh, those of us that are engaged in politics are following this very closely. The vast, vast, vast majority of Americans are not. They're concerned about gas prices. They're concerned about inflation. They're concerned about job security. They're concerned about their own health care, their own health insurance, their own paid sick leave, things like that. I say all that to say, I think while it's important to talk about things that connect with people, there also becomes a point where that doesn't matter in the same way. So for example, We had a big vote on right to work in Missouri a few years ago. So now we know exactly where everybody stands. But before that, people would ask me, I'm from mid-Missouri. We don't have the same history of labor unions as St. Louis or Kansas City or some big cities around the country. And they would say, what are your constituents? What what is right to work? How popular is it in your area? Have you pulled it? And I would say like, no, I haven't pulled it because it doesn't matter because I'm against it and I'm already there. So it doesn't really particularly matter. Uh, The issue of democracy and defending democracy also is one of those issues where it does matter how we talk about it. But there becomes a point where we have a duty to stand up for it and it doesn't matter if that is going to be, if that is the number one issue, like there is a, like a a, a deeper thing at stake and we cannot afford to not talk about it, even if there are other issues that we need to to talk about as well, if that makes sense. So you can't put it on the back burner just because uh, when, 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 when a coup happens and one party says we're good with a coup, like You can't just say, well, it pulled as the fifth biggest issue. So we're just going to ignore it. Like you have to actually address it. You have to say something. You need to do it in a smart way. And you shouldn't fool yourself that like you're going to win the election on that issue alone because you're not. But there is a duty to address it no matter what, because it's that important.
1: To me, this isn't like to Stephen's point, this isn't an issue where it's like you're going to win an election on it. But this to me is we talk a lot about what are the things that we should be talking about more often that are just about, frankly, recruiting, like trying to get people to not be Republicans and to be Democrats, and that we've made the mistake for so long of telling people, well, Trump is not like other Republicans. So then when Trump wasn't on the ballot, people could just go back to voting Republican. This to me feels like the thing that the Republican Party does well, which is they pit people against the left edge of the party constantly to consistently make people feel like, well, you're not a Democrat because Democrats are for this thing and this thing and this thing, or or they're, uh, you know, m- best represented by these people who, you know, you don't relate to because they come from a different part of the country than you. I mean, this is potentially a major misstep by the RNC, right? And political, I mean, obviously, like, in <laughs> to, to Stephen's point, uh, in terms of, you know, the country continuing to be a democracy, major misstep. But in terms of giving us an opportunity to say, look, the Republican Party itself is so extreme that they're going against their more reasonable members who you would tend to agree with. That seems like an overall opportunity.
0: Yeah. And I think part of like and and something you've conditioned me to think about, Jason, is is to not overstate how many of those members there are. You know it's Adam Kinzinger Cheney, I mean, maybe a couple other people out there they're they're going extinct, and after this next election, there might not be any of them at least in office and you know, Stephen, to something you said one thing i'm I'm constantly trying to wrestle with is. This what's the matter with Kansas point, and this is Max Rose was on last week, and he's basically critiquing the theory of you know this this theory that you know the, the sort of quote voting against our economic interests argument about voters that Democrats are like we have the right policy, but people are not voting our way. I agree with Max that, that that theory has some flaws, but one thing I do notice is that I think people have a different idea of what their interests are, and sometimes it might not be economic. Sometimes it's cultural, right? And so even though There's like this program or that program they like Democrats on. They don't identify with us as a cultural force sometimes. Uh, This gets a little bit to the Rogan conversation. They look at us like a a sort of threat to their way of life in certain kinds of ways. And even if it's not tangible, they're sold on that. And I'm wondering if there's a way we could frame these anti-democratic moves in cultural terms, like in terms of patriotism and our way of life, you know?
2: Every time somebody says about people voting against their own self-interest, their own economic interest, I want to throw something. Because it is <laughs> just, I mean, don't ever, ever say that phrase ever again, anybody listening to this podcast, because it's presumptuous and it makes people dislike you and it's wrong. I vote against my economic interests. I don't vote my pocketbook. I vote my values. I vote, I vote against my own economic interests for things that I think are more important for society and the values that reflect me. And if somebody thinks that I'm going to sell out my values, you know, if, if I'm going to sell out... Uh, LGBT equality or a woman's right to choose because it, it adds a couple dollars to my paycheck. Like I would be offended by that. Right. Cause that, that and it, and I, anybody should be offended. So that the idea that somebody is going to sell out their values for their economic interest is, is wrong. And it's bizarre to me that people think that that is happening. So you're hundred percent right. Like it's actually about values and going back to the January 6th thing, parties are not stagnant. They change, they evolve. There are a whole bunch of people whose values are cultural institutions or structural uh, stability. These folks typically have said that they are Republicans. They've aligned with Republicans because they believe that per- by definition, progressives are trying to change things. They don't want these institutions to change. There is an opportunity to make an argument to them that is persuasive to them that the folks that stormed the United States Capitol, that stormed the floor of the United States Senate, that caused tear gas to be and gunshots to happen inside the, the building, the Capitol building, are not the ones that are defending the institutions. That may not be the most persuasive. I mean, the, the coup argument, like, just is enough for me. But there are other people that that may be a very persuasive argument to. And as these parties change and evolve, to not make that argument and to write that off and not see if we can bring people over based on that and say, wait a minute, the modern Republican Party has no respect for. Institutions has no respect for these values, and if you actually believe in defending them, you should be voting differently.
1: All right, so Ravi, recently when we did our first ad for Sakara for the meal plan, uh, I had gotten the bars in the mail, and I really liked them, but I had not yet gotten the meals. And you said that the pasta a la vodka was like amazing. So when they came, the first thing I I ate was that. And it was amazing.
0: Yeah. I like this food is incredible and I, I keep them stacked here in the office. It's my go to lunch. And for me, uh, my energy levels when I when I'm eating this stuff are so much better in the afternoons because, you know, it's the the portions are really good. The ingredients they use are really good. And so I can't say enough about this company.
1: Yeah, it's a wellness company anchored in food as medicine on a mission to nourish your body through the power of plants. Like how awesome does that sound? Right now, Sakara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash majority54 or enter the code majority54 at checkout. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A.com slash majority54 to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash majority54. People who are going ahead and, and signing up for Athletic Greens are, uh, you know, tagging me on Instagram or they're, they're, they're tweeting at me and being like, okay, I finally did it. And I just want to say that I fully encourage this practice.
0: My feelings are hurt because I get a few of these, but not as many as you do. So audience, come on now, include me in the, in the conversation here. Like I will, I will retweet or. Re repost any Instagram post of anybody getting athletic greens. And the reason why I'm so excited is that AG1 contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, or artificial anything. Uh, and it really just tastes good. Uh, tons of people they take like, you know, some form of multivitamin a lot of different stuff. But what AG1 does is it it brings everything together into just one supplement. I take it first thing in the morning before I come to the office. And uh, it really gives me that extra pep in my step. So to make investing in your health easy,
1: Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance.
0: So, Stephen, we talk about Josh Hawley a lot here because we you know, have a huge Missouri audience, but also, you know, the national audience wants their Hawley content, too. Well, he's got a competing and,
2: podcast, too, so you got to. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, of course, we're talking about uh, U.S. Senator Josh Hawley, uh, the current junior senator from the state of Missouri. Uh, Stephen, I heard you have uncovered certain things. Uh, let us in on it.
2: Yeah. So somebody that wanted me to see, uh, wanted the world to see one of Josh's briefing books when he was making a trip to Missouri. These are public documents that your tax dollars paid for. And they were were preparing him um, when he came back for a visit. I mean, he lives in Virginia now. So he came back to Missouri State. he, He represents for about 20 hours. He met with CEOs. He met with politicians. He met with nobody else. There was nobody else on his schedule who was not a CEO or a politician. And there were some really amazing things in the briefing book. And the main one was how Twitter obsessed he is. So this is a United States senator with everything going on in the world. And a continuing theme of uh, preparing him for his meetings was who had tweeted nice things about him, who had tweeted mean things about him, who hadn't tweeted when they had nice things about him, when they had asked him to tweet nice things about him. And a lot of these tweets were over a year old. So you've got somebody like a staffer that paid for with tax dollars who is briefing a senator on before you go to this meeting in Missouri, you should know that a year ago, we asked this person to tweet a nice thing about you and they wouldn't do it.
0: <laughs> He's like a mafia, Don. It's the level of just yeah. petty, you know? And it's just like, yeah. you, you're supposed to be,
2: you're one out of a hundred senators, maybe worry more about the economy, worry about Ukraine, worry about, you know, all sorts of other important things rather than whether uh, Holly Rader, who's the state senator in Missouri, would send a nice tweet about you after January 6th, like you asked her to. He also just dismissed, I mean, he referred to the, or his staff referred to January 6th as the, the January 6th hysteria. And it was just a, a very callous dismissal of, of something that has left people dead, that has left, I mean, a, a scar. I mean, we lost control of the floor of the United States Senate. Like that, people I don't think understand that, like coup participants took control of the floor of the United States Senate. The United States government did not control the floor of the United States Senate. And uh, the guy with a, like a crazy little headgear lion thing did. And Josh Holly refers to his, uh, or his staff refers to it as hysteria. So it just really was an interesting, disturbing insight into what his priorities are, which are clearly himself and what people are saying about him.
0: Um, did the news pick this up? Did, it, did anybody write about it?
2: Uh, there were some reporters that called me about it, um, and I don't recall whether they actually published stories on it or not.
1: That's what's sad is the, the expectations of, of Holly are so low now for him to actually do anything of value to anybody other than Holly that that's the sad thing is that like when bad people do bad things, they're like, well, there's no news there.
2: I mean, after you've encouraged a coup, just being obsessed about Twitter doesn't seem like that crazy a thing.
1: And it's a good point.
2: Yeah. But you go back to the idea of a United States Senator only meeting with CEOs, only meeting with politicians and the only real major briefing. Like Under uh, issues of concern, one of them was literally about a state representative who had been tweeting bad about his position on big tech. That was an issue of concern.
0: It's really like a Veep episode, really. Like, it's just like the pettiness. It's unbelievable.
1: I've not seen Veep, but I'll take your word for it. So the uh, politicians that Holly was coming back to the state to meet with are also currently engaged. And this was, as I recall, part of his uh, briefing stuff, uh, currently engaged in the big fight over redistricting and that's that's coming to a head. Steven, uh you were super involved uh in in redistricting this year in Missouri. And that's something in the road to the midterms theme of this year, we've been talking a lot about protecting democracy at the local level, rather than just putting all of our energy into protecting democracy by uh, trying to overcome the filibuster. Because the front line of protecting democracy in this country is things like gerrymandering, it's things like electing county clerks and secretaries of state and that sort of thing. So I'm going to give folks listening a quick primer on the process that just took place, and then we'll get into your experience with it. Um, So In Missouri, there's a bipartisan commission that's tasked with redrawing Missouri's 163 House districts and the state Senate districts, right? The 34 state Senate districts. They finalized a new map. It's going to leave eight incumbents drawn into the same districts. The House Independent Bipartisan Citizens Commission unanimously approved the new map Wednesday. Commission members said its map has more competitive house districts than Missouri has seen in recent years. And it's the first time since 1966 that the map was unanimous and the first time since 1980 that the commission, not the courts, drew the map. So, Stephen, you were super involved in this effort. Zoom out for us and start by explaining the role that you played and like the stakeholders that you had to bring to the table, what the goals were, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah. So uh, it was a long process. It was about it was about a year. We started um, at the end of last February in, in Missouri, we've, we've gone through several different iterations. So we've changed the way redistricting is done. I think this is the third version in the last four years. And so some of the versions obviously never got used. In this current one, this, this bipartisan commission, it's, it's 10 Republicans, 10 Democrats on the House and 10 Republicans, 10 Democrats on the Senate. The first thing to note is it's, it's an inherently partisan process right like it the the two party system bipartisan is written into the the state constitution and there's no way that it's not an adversarial partisan process. That is the way it's designed. That's the way that it's set up to be. So thats I think that's something that's worth noting. The way the members were nominated uh, from different congressional districts around the state, so there's geographic diversity, and then the governor picks from a list that was presented to him. So the first thing we had to do was we had to have uh, these congressional district meetings. And, and in Missouri, the congressional districts vary tremendously. You've got St. Louis City, where the district is you know relatively small, and then you've got the sixth congressional, which is the entire northern third of the state of Missouri. Uh, and we had to get Majority of the members of those congressional districts, which was you know, and sometimes 150 people, uh, together uh, in an area where they had to draw in northern Missouri, they had to drive two or three hours each to get there during a pandemic, so they could nominate folks. So it, it took quite a bit of logistical work on the front end. Once we got the folks impaneled, and, and, and one of my jobs was to get you know union members and make sure we had. Um, diversity of of all types on, on the the commissions. So we did that. And then we, for the first couple of months, really nothing was happening because it's, you know, redistricting is, is from a partisan perspective is a zero sum game, right? Like the two parties, like if one is gaining a seat, one is losing a seat. And so there's not a lot of incentive to work together towards the end of the process. We sort of kind of had a breakthrough when we figured out that there were some other values that we had besides just the number of sheer number of of seats. So um, for example, we wanted really competitive districts. As the Democrats, we, had, we have 49 seats in Missouri. In the Missouri House, out of 163. So from our perspective, we wanted to raise our risk profile. We wanted to have more seats that we could win because having 47 or 49 or 45, like the difference is negligible. Like
0: we want to get into the 60s. Can I pause for a second and ask you something uh, about that? I like this, this sort of sense of this idea of raising the risk profile, right? So correct me if I'm wrong, what you mean is that you'd rather have a world where we could lose more seats than uh, than like a quote unquote safe map, but we would have the opportunity to gain more, right? Is that, is that what you're saying?
2: So every time there's an opportunity to draw one safe democratic district or two competitive districts, we would opt for two competitive districts. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and that's not everybody around the country, right? That's a specific strategy that you guys have employed in Missouri.
2: Yeah. And so the people that want to draw the safe seats of the one individual that's representing a district that's safe, they would right. rather have a safe seat, right? And so right. that's where there's some tension between like, so my job as, as AFL was to represent the interests of labor unions and labor union members. And our members uh, need more people that will vote for them. We are not as concerned about who that individual person is. We just need more volume incumbents care about who that person is because that person might be them, right? Or that's their job. Yeah. And so there's going to be a tension there. And you know, we, we also think that, that drawing competitive districts leads to better representation. And when I say better, I mean uh, a person that's in a competitive district where they're going to have to to have a tough race is more likely to stay in touch with us. They're more likely to come to a meeting and meet our members because they know they're going to need as much help as they can get. They're more likely to really dive into the issues because they're going to have to do debates and things like that. People in safe seats, a lot of them do a really great job. Some of them take advantage of that and say, well, I'm never going to lose. So I, I'm going to work as hard as I need to. And that's, that's not very hard. So as a outside group, we actually have an interest in there being competitive districts. We think it results in better representation. Um, so we were, we were pushing that as well. So just, just for an idea for some of the numbers, currently, um, 49 districts in Missouri voted for Biden. Um, under the new maps, there's 57 districts that voted for Biden. So we added eight of those. Um, if you did it by the Claire McCaskill 2018 numbers, there were, there are currently 50 districts. This would get us up to there's 60 districts that voted for, for Claire. So we've really raised the ceiling of what we can do.
0: Why were Republicans okay with that? Like, why did they sign off on that?
2: Right. So the Republicans, uh, their sort of incentives were different. Um, they had more incumbents to protect. They didn't want to go to court and have an, uh, the courts drawing more of their incumbents together. Um, they also had some specific leaders that they were concerned about. The, the the next Speaker of the House was in an area that could easily have come back from court and he would have been drawn out of his district. So they placed a high value on protecting him. You know, we don't how we didn't have that situation, so we were, were willing to say, okay, we can compromise and we can protect this leader of high value, but we need, for the next decade, we need two or three more competitive districts over here that will pay off. The other thing we did that, you know, we're finding silver linings here, but being being in a minority, um, we could take a longer term view, right? So, for example, we drew districts that we think that the trends are over the next six years, a Democrat can win. So they're not going to be competitive maybe in 2022, but in 2028, if the trend line continues the way it's moved the last six years, they should be competitive. And so there was a bunch of districts like that that we tried to set up for ourselves to say, okay, how do we want to grow into this in a a sustainable way?
1: So that's a really interesting thing to pick up on because you you and I frequently have conversations about all, all the people who come to both of us and say, what are we going to do about this election, right? Like, who, you know, there's a a US Senate race going on right now in Missouri, and there's a Democratic primary, and neither you or I have weighed in on it. And people are constantly, I think, coming to both of us and going, which one of these people could save us? And we are both, I think, some of the only people in the state giving them the answer of, that's really the wrong conversation. The right conversation is, what's the 10-year, what's the 15-year plan to make it so that you don't need, not to sound hubris but like because people always what about you or Claire is what people always say to me what you know Jason Kander or Claire McCaskill and the point is shouldn't we get to a point where you don't have to have one of two people for a race to become competitive and and so it sounds like that's that's the strategy you were employing here
2: yeah it's it you know we've been sounding like old people but we've been doing this for a while now and there's always another year there's always another cycle that's coming right and so setting up like game of pool like setting up your next shot even while you're taking this one, you're still not trying to miss this shot. It's still important. Like you're, 2022 is a very important year. We're going to do everything we can, but 2020, 24 is going to happen. 2026 is going to happen. And what do we, what can we do to put ourselves in, in the best situation? The other thing referencing what I mentioned earlier about just parties not being static. It's, it's amazing when you do redistricting and you look, you know, I, not that I was as involved in 10 years ago, but you and I were in the house so we followed it. So much has changed in 10 years and in a lot of different ways. To be totally honest, geographically, the, the Democrats' world is smaller than it used to be. And it's incredibly noticeable. I mean, 10 years ago, we cared about how the boot heel in Missouri, the southeast part of the state got drawn. That mattered a lot. How the northeast part of the state, how certain, your certain rural communities that we cared about what was kept together. And in terms of winning house districts right now, the way you draw the lines just doesn't matter you know, from a partisan perspective. And that was really, really, really stunning to watch. But- on the positive side there's other areas that 10 years ago we didn't even look at as potential that now we can compete in even just in terms of like diversity like there's there's far more african americans moving from st louis into the the suburban area like st charles and like that's having a real impact that's a real thing and so it's interesting to to look at that and over a relatively short period of time See that there's massive shifts, and we said to so say there's going to be massive shifts again in the next ten years, and you can't predict what they're all going to be, and so like you have to keep working everywhere, you have to keep doing things, and put yourself in position to be ready. And I mean, this is happening all over the country. This is not just a Missouri conversation, right? Like all over the country, things look different than they did ten years ago, and they're going to look different again ten years from now.
0: Yeah, and so let's zoom out and talk about the national conversation. A lot has been happening around the country the past few weeks on the redistricting front. And I I found it hard to keep up with whether it's helping one party or the other, but also like in general, what it means for our democracy. You know, just this week, we had a a 5-4 vote from the Supreme Court in which they halted a lower court ruling that was going to require Alabama to redraw a gerrymandered congressional map. And basically, they've now grouped all significant pockets of black voters in the state into one district, which essentially means that they can't influence other races. There's something going on in Kansas. I know you guys can pay attention to Kansas, given how close it is, about the governor vetoing a map and then potentially like uh, being overridden. And then you have this stunning fact. This is just from February 7th. So just a few days ago, it's from Dave Wasserman. He tweeted the following. He said, fact, of the 301 new house districts that have now been adopted, just 17, which is 5.6% went for Biden or Trump by five points or less. That's down from 39 of 301 districts, 13% in the same states currently. And he goes to like the trend. It just keeps getting smaller and smaller percentage of swing districts in this country. So it's now about 5%. I see this in my district in Staten Island where they gerrymandered uh, what was a swing district into, I wouldn't say safe democratic, but significantly more democratic district. I of two minds of this, bad for democracy in general, but we don't want to unilaterally disarm, right? We want to reform redistricting at the national level. It would be foolish to to lay down and create fair districts in democratic states only. But how do you think about this?
2: Yeah, I, I 100% agree in terms of like, we need national reform and it's crazy to unilaterally disarm, right? Like it's the same thing with like campaign finance reform, right? Like we, we, we need to do things to get money out of politics, but There's no valor in saying that I'm going to get the hell kicked out of me with millions of dollars of super PAC money, but I'm not going to respond like that. That doesn't make any sense. And that's not good for for representing people. You know, the, the number that often gets quoted in terms of like who's winning redistricting, right? Like Democrats or Republicans is Biden number, the number of districts that voted for Joe Biden. And going back to what I just said, things are going to change. Like Things are not going to be the same 10 years from now. And people are, are playing percentages, right? So they're saying like, I think this is going to help us. And we're, we're guessing this is going to help us. And it will in some places. And then there's going to be some states where somebody, a party, a Democrat, Republican, whatever, is just going to wildly miscalculate and things are going to go a completely different direction. And a district that they thought they were doing something really clever with is going to, you know, politics are going to change in and, and eight years from now, they're going to lose it. So our ability to to see everything into the future is maybe not as great as we, we think it is. But by and large, yeah, it's it's bad for for democracy. And it's it's uh, like I said, it, increased competition is good, not only just for voters and choices, but it makes makes elected officials work. It makes them get out there and, and actually listen to people. And that's important.
1: You know, on that point, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, like just in this episode about, you know, the people who are in really competitive seats, they have to work really hard by nature of it. And then the people who aren't in competitive seats, sometimes they have to work really hard or they don't have to, but sometimes they do. The other piece to that though is like, I remember you and I, when we were in the house together, we were in safe democratic seats and yet we worked really hard. But I also look back and go, okay, I worked really hard, but I really wanted to be a statewide elected official, (laughs) right? And so like, I... So what that means now that happened to be the case that therefore my incentives, and and I think I did these things for the right reasons, but like, I don't know, like my incentive was still like, I wasn't moderate in the house, but my incentive was to find things I could work on with Republicans. So I would have accomplishments to talk about. Now I think I was also incentivized to do that because it was my job, but like, I have to be honest and self-aware that like that I was incentivized that way. And you, you were the same you wanted to do the good things but you also you were a state rep who at that time was thinking you wanted to be the state senator and it was a very very much a, a swing district so while you were a progressive you were also very interested in coming up with bipartisan results so i guess the piece that we should speak to is is that there are the other thing the other category it's not just people who they don't work hard because their seat is safe or they do work hard because their seat isn't safe but then there's this third category of their seat is safe but so is the next thing they want to go to. And those people are, in many ways, the most dangerous. Those are the ones who will never, ever try to work across the aisle and will be a part of the problem because they want to run for like a state Senate seat that the only thing that can beat them is a primary opponent.
2: Yeah. So it kind of builds on itself. And to be clear, like, some of the best representatives and senators that you and I know are from safe seats, so it's not it's not a blanket thing. And and, and there's some real bumps on the log in, in competitive districts, but by and large, so like the example that I will give is I I came from Columbia, uh, which is a, a college town in, in central Missouri, and when I was running for the state senate, like there was some really rural areas there, and so I had to go out and learn agricultural issues, and I had to stretch myself, and I had to take on something that I didn't know, and that I wouldn't have had the reason to dive into otherwise. And so when I say make people like, like work, that's kind of what I mean about like actually leave their electoral base comfort zone, whatever side that is and um, go out and do more things. Roy blunt, right? When Missouri was competitive district, when he was, you know, worried about beating you, he was going to St. Louis and Kansas city and, and doing events and doing things and wanted to be seen in St. Louis and Kansas city. And as Missouri has become, redder and less competitive, now the uh, Republican statewides don't go to St. Louis and Kansas City and they spend their time attacking and teeing off on the mayor and the county executive and stuff like that rather than trying to work with them and forge bridges. So I think it's on on both sides, both parties. And I think that's that's a good example kind of, of how it's a loss for the citizens.
1: I remember being at an event at an HBCU at a historically black college in St. Louis where Roy Blunt spoke after me And I remember he got up, and this was in 2016, and he ended up having to say Black Lives Matter. And I remember thinking at that moment, you know, whether I win this race or not, like I made Roy Blunt say Black Lives Matter before any Republican in the entire country, which to your point, really ultimately, we should pursue more competitive districts because if we don't win those districts at least we get somebody who has to at least think about the majority of the voters and and trying to
0: do something that is not just about a very small sliver just this past week representative jim cooper a friend of mine in in nashville represents the Nashville area retired because they split Nashville in half. You know, it's, it's kind of a crazy process that means that, you know, a growing, vibrant city like Nashville doesn't get its own representative. Now, now the likely re- scenario is that Nashville is not represented by somebody in Congress who's from Nashville or even lives there or gives a shit about it. That's crazy. I want to take a second to sort of
2: talk about why that matters. One of the things in any legislative body is it's not just how many votes you have, like public schools. Like you ask people, do you support public schools? And most people are going to say yes. It matters how many champions you have. A lot of times there's limited floor time. There's limited number of bill slots out of a committee. It's not just that you need people to support you. You need to be somebody's priority. You need to be what somebody is fighting for. And so when you have a town, whether it's Nashville at a congressional level, Ferguson in Missouri, in a a local level that's divided, it doesn't become anybody's priority. People can get their votes from somewhere else. And what you really need is somebody who is a champion, who they, like who comes back, and, and they have to deal with the mayor of the biggest city or town in their district. They have to deal with the school district in that district, and they need to go out there and they need to make fighting for that, the needs of of those entities, a priority. And when you divide a city, you divide a town in three or four pieces with gerrymandering, you end up where it's nobody's priority. And then if you're the if you're the school board, if you're the mayor. If you're the city council, if you're the county, whatever the entity is, if you're the the, the economic development sort of um, entity, the, the local chamber, you don't have anybody that can call that's going to go to war for you because you have to call four people and they all you're you're ten percent or fifteen percent to all of them rather than sixty or seventy percent to one person.
1: Hey there! I want to tell you about another podcast from Wonder Media Network that I think you'll love: The Brown Girls Guide to Politics hosted by Ashanti Goler, BGG is the one-stop shop for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. In honor of Black History and Women's History Month, they're spotlighting black, brown, and indigenous women of color who are blazing trails in politics. Tune in as Ashanti speaks with guests like Lafonza Butler, the president of Emily's List, and Michelle Wu, the first woman of color to serve as the mayor of Boston. Seriously, the show is really good. Listen to new episodes every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. So finally, our grab an or slash road to the midterms segment where we ask our guests to tell us about a race that we probably wouldn't be aware of otherwise. And certainly our listeners wouldn't be aware of otherwise that is important to, you know, the front lines of democracy or to anything else that really matters. So, Stephen, tell us about one.
2: Uh, so actually, Canada just announced yesterday in Missouri, Kathy Steinhoff, Kathy with a K if you're, if you're searching for her. She's a teacher that is retiring this year. So she's teaching in a classroom right now. Um, This mayor is going to be her last, last month of teaching. And she's just announced for state representative in Columbia, Missouri, and part of the area I used to represent. And the reason I'm so excited about her is because when I was just talking about, you need to be somebody's priority. You know, she has taught for 34 years. She's been the president of the local teachers union for six years. And so for her, Like public education is a priority and it's something she knows well and that she's going to stand up and fight for and defend. And I'm also very excited because she is retiring this year. She's taught for 34 years. She could retire. She could go do nothing. She could travel. She could do anything. And she's going right into the fight and running for office. So the very first summer of her retirement, she's going to be campaigning. And then hopefully in her first year, she'll be a state representative. And I say this to everybody to say, one, you talk about grabbing an oar, like she's not Taking a break, right? She's moving right from the classroom to something else. Two, she's a first-time candidate, and I know that putting yourself out there is is tough and difficult. And um, she's doing it like for the first time. I don't know how old she is, but at retirement age, she's doing it for the first time, and that's awesome. And so, I hope that's inspiration for other people out there that you can be a first-time candidate too, and that we need good people as grassroots as it gets, like right out of the classroom into the halls of power right off the job site, right out of the factory, right out of uh, nurse, If you're a nurse, right out of the hospital, whatever, like we, there is nobody else out there that is more qualified than you are to, to run for office. Um, if Donald Trump could be president, you are absolutely qualified to run for any, anything that you want to. And so I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. I'm excited. She's running and, and check her out.
1: All right. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, we are still looking for listeners who want to speak to us on the show. Uh, it could be about persuading so and so in your life it could be about hey i don't like what you and ravi said about surfing more likely it'll be i don't agree with you about joe rogan whatever it is you know if you want to come on the show and talk to us your audition opportunity is to call 508-687-2589 508-687-2589 as always i'm at jason Cander on instagram and twitter ravi is at ravi m gupta on twitter and instagram you're about to see lots of surfing stuff there i mean how exciting is that uh steven is at s underscore weber with two b's so at s underscore w-e-b-b-e-r on twitter and our show is at majority 54 on twitter steven thanks for doing this man
2: oh thanks for having me man
1: enjoyed it all right remember we all have a platform make sure to use yours today
0: majority 54 is a wonder media network production is produced by grace lynch ed allard and adesua agbanile theme music provided by Kemet coleman and special thanks to diana kander Hi, listeners, it's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders, Zachary Carabell and Executive Director, Emma Lucas